The book of Joshua is the account of Israel by the power of God moving into the land of Canaan and beginning the conquest of it. Joshua is the leader of Israel. Moses passes away at the end of Deuteronomy and Joshua now uh, leads the people in. And the book of Judges then picks up where that leaves off. Notice in Judges begins with the death of Joshua. Their great leader has passed away and now what is going to happen? While the the nation, the land is, is... fairly conquered, there's still quite a bit of conquest that still needs to take place within the land. As the apportionment of their inheritance to each of the tribes has been delineated, there are still all kinds of inhabitants that still are in the land. So, though great cities have fallen, like like in Jericho and places like that, that doesn't mean all the people are gone yet. And so the book of Judges is a time that now that Joshua is gone, to finish the job to go about and drive out the rest of the inhabitants. And as we're going to study this book, we're going to notice some things. First, as we've mentioned from time to time in our studies, we should never come into the narratives of the Old Testament and think, well, you know, here's just the story of how it went, as if that's why God gave it was just kind of here's the history book. Be sure you memorize all the information. There's a lot that God wants us to learn about himself. And we need to read those stories like we're going to do with the narratives that are found in the book of Judges. And learn, well, what do we learn about God? Why is this here? Why are all of these events recorded? Perhaps even more specifically, the book of Judges is curious because we will have times where we will have an awful lot of information given about certain times during the days of the Judges. For example, we'll get large sections of story concerning Deborah and Gideon and Samson. And then we'll get one sentence for Shamgar. What is God doing with this? What is God trying to teach us with these things? And that's important for us to have that lens as we study Judges and learn what is God trying to teach us. And that is certainly the goal. Anytime that we're studying the Scriptures, remember that we're supposed to be learning things about God. We're learning about His character. We're learning about how He deals with His people. And we're going to certainly then spend time talking about that. There are two themes that I think come out of the book of Judges that we're going to emphasize on a regular basis as we study this. The first theme is found actually as the very last sentence of the book. If you go to Judges chapter 21 and look at the very last sentence, Judges 21 and verse 25, here is the end of the book, the final declaration about how it all happened. Judges 21 verse 25 In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And hence, that's our first theme line that's on the screen before us, is that this is one of the key messages of Judges, is we are going to see that the people determine for themselves that they are going to do what they want to do. They are going to live in a means by which that is right to their own eyes. 
And this is one of the reasons I feel this is a compelling book for us to study, because this is exactly where our society and culture sits, that it is all about doing what seems right to us. We will do what is best for us, what we think is right. We will follow our hearts. We will do what is best. All of these favorite taglines that we have will just reminds us that that is the days of the book of Judges. This is how the people are living. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And what we're going to learn then is by living according to what is right in our own eyes, it leads to disaster, which leads to the second line that's on our screen. The other theme of this book is why God has to save us from ourselves. The book then goes through talking about how the people do what is right in their own eyes and God has to deliver them over and over and over again because of their foolish ways, because they're following their own heart and doing what they want. And so each of these events and each of these judges is going to show us a narrative and give us an account of here's what the people are doing and why that is a total disaster. And how God faithfully again and again will come in and save them and show how the people need to be saved from their own disaster that they brought upon themselves. So that gives us an overview of what this book is about. What is interesting is perhaps the first 18 verses are really as good as it gets in the book. This is the high water mark for our, our, our story. We're going to have 21 chapters. We're at the pinnacle right out of the gate. This is not going to get better as the story goes along. I want you to note that as we go through this, it's only going to get worse and worse. One of the most interesting things that we see about this book is that while God continues to send saviors to be able to help the people and deal with their problem, those saviors get worse and worse. They start off on a pretty high moral level in desiring God and following God. But it becomes a steady decline as each one rises up. They do not seem to rise as high as the previous. And because they do not rise as high as the previous, we'll notice each generation has a greater depravity and goes into a greater depth of wickedness and sin. And so the book is often termed as a book of cycles, which is exactly right, is the people will sin and God will allow them to be oppressed. And a certain amount of time of oppression will go by and then the people will finally cry out for a deliverer to save them from their oppression. God will hear their cry, send that savior and deliver them from their difficulty and oppression to which the people will then immediately turn back into their sin and go back to the ways they were such that God will allow them to be oppressed by the nations because of their sin until finally the people cry out to God and God will send yet another deliverer and the cycle continues and continues and continues for approximately 400 years. And nobody ever learns because we get to the very last sentence of the book. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Nobody learns what God was trying to teach. And so we're going to look at this and see, well, what are we supposed to learn from what God is teaching in this book? Chapter 1, verse 1. An interesting beginning. It could be probably even described as a successful beginning. You'll notice the nation of Judah, now that Joshua has passed away, they say, well, who is going to go up for us? 
And we've lost our military leader in Joshua. There are still peoples to drive out. The inhabitants still need to be dealt with. We need to drive out the Canaanites and get them out of this land as God had instructed them to do. Who is going to go up for us then is the cry in verse 1 against these Canaanites and fight against them. And God's answer in verse 2 is Judah is going to be the lead tribe. Judah will go up and do this. They will be the ones. And notice verse 2 gives the promise. I have given the land into his hand. This becomes a critical reminder of a promise. The land of Canaan was promised to Israel. All they needed to do was go in and take it. But this book is going to show very quickly why that falls apart. But this is the high water mark of the story. You'll notice in verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it by the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. You'll notice that whole section through from chapter 1, 1 to verse 18 is all about success. Judah goes in and conquers just as God said. God is faithful to his promise and gives them the victory. They go against Jerusalem, they win. They go into the hill country, they win. Here they go, here they go, and they are victorious, victorious, victorious. And I think when we have to take a step back just for a moment, because one of the criticisms that gets levied against the book of Joshua and the book of Judges needs to be dealt with right here. How can it be that God is calling for the complete wipeout of the Canaanite people? That is one of the things that often gets brought up by atheists in an attack against the scriptures. How can this loving God tell Israel to utterly destroy, drive out all of these peoples, take them out out of the land and kill them, to not let them live? How can that possibly be? The answer is easy. It just requires us to know a little bit more about what God was saying. If you go over to Deuteronomy, I'll have it on the screen, but it might be easier to read in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 4. Here's what God said. Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, here's the message to Israel. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. So here's the warning against pride and arrogance. Israel, when you get into the land of Canaan, do not go in there and think that's because of who you are. You're so good. You're so righteous that that's why you have the land. That's not why you're on this land. At all. He says, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or of the uprightness of your heart. Are you going in to possess their land? But because of their wickedness of these nations, the Lord, your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word. The Lord spoke, swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord, your God is not giving you this good land to possess. Because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. (laughs) Any clearer than that? 
This is not about you, Israel. This is about their sins. The reason why the Canaanites are being driven out under Joshua and now in the days of the judges is not because God is showing favoritism and, oh, well, he loves Israel more than these people. And so here is this mean, hateful God killing all these other people so that he can show this favoritism to Israel. He says that's not the case at all. There's nothing in the righteousness of Israel that is bringing this about. All that God says is their wicked deeds have brought this about. It is time for a national judgment. It was time for the peoples to be judged. Later on, we won't turn there, but you can even know Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14. There's a long list of the sins that the Canaanites are committing. And the reason why he gives that list in Deuteronomy 18 is to tell the people, when you go in, don't do what they do. They're being driven out for all of these wicked things. That's why they're being judged. That's why they're being taken off of the land. And you better not follow in their steps. So it's important to defend what's happening in the text because that's a criticism that's often laid. Well, how can God do that? Because it was time for judgment. And God is right to bring judgment against peoples at any time that he wills. It's one of the things we've learned quite strongly in Romans 9, haven't we? That all are under the scourge of judgment. And it is only by the mercy of God that we continue on until judgment falls upon us as well. And so the time for the Canaanites had come. And now Israel is being used as God's tool then to drive them out. So that is the first picture we're given. And so that's why there is success. Why God is giving this land to Israel to let them now inhabit this land. But verse 19 is perhaps one of the most stunning, curious statements in the book of Judges. Judges 1 verse 19. See if you catch why this is strange. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. God is with Judah and Judah's driving out the inhabitants But when they get to the army that has chariots of iron, now they can no longer drive them out. Is God not stronger than chariots of iron? What is going on in this scene that here we have victory and Judah is conquering and winning and taking cities and taking land. And then suddenly they come up with an army against them and they've got chariots of iron. And now God's not strong enough for us to win. And then they just just take a whipping right here and they lose. What's going on? I think it becomes evident to what's happening just in the very language of verse 19. Because they had chariots of iron. The Lord is with them. They can't drive out the inhabitants. But why would that be the case? Because they're not relying upon God. They're looking at the opponent. They're looking at the enemy and saying, we can't win. Look at what they have. They have chariots of iron. This has been the history of Israel. Remember the whole reason why they had to spend 40 years wandering in a desert for a while is they looked at the enemy and said, they're stronger than us. They're bigger than us. And we can't do it. And only two men stood up and said, wait, it doesn't matter what they have because God is with us and we will win. 
And now we come to the days of judges and they're whipping everybody. And then they come to chariots of iron and they go, well, we can't win against that. What are we going to do? We're scared. And what is perhaps most shocking about that is Joshua and Joshua chapter 17 verses 16 and 18 said God promised that he would drive out even the chariots of iron. God had said, don't worry about those chariots of iron that's in that land. I'm with you and we'll take them. And so the point is being made. It's not that God is not with his people is that the people are not putting their trust nor finding their strength in the Lord. They're putting their trust and looking for strength in the physical. They're measuring up and going, well, here's our weapons and here's our army and here's their army. And they're more vast than us because 900 some chariots of iron can do way more damage than a few men on foot. They can rout us in a heartbeat. And so they say we cannot win. We will not be able to succeed. And if you are calculating By your own physical strength, and you would be right. You are going to lose against the chariots of iron. The the assessment is not false to think we can't win against them. The assessment is false is because the Lord is with you. And they forgot what it means to rely on the strength of the Lord. And it's why I wanted to bring this in with what we're doing on Sunday morning about depending upon the strength of the Lord. Because here we see the failure. Here we see people looking to themselves, looking to their own might and their own abilities and saying, well, now I can't do it. And they fail to believe in the word of God that said you will be victorious. You can conquer all of these enemies. In fact, what did it say there in verse two or in, yeah, verse two of the first chapter? I've given the land into your hand. There's God's promise. The land is given to you. You just need to go and take it. And instead of doing that, they look at the opposition and say, well, we can't do it. God's not strong enough. He's not with us. He's not going to help us. We can't do it. And so this begins a domino effect of all kinds of failure, because what they're doing now is they're now going to miss out on what God is trying to give them. This is going to now wreck the promised land. This becomes the turning point already in the book. We have barely got going. We had 18 verses of positive, and now it is all going to unravel upon them. And this is the problem that happens when we do not put our trust in God and do not believe in the strength that he has, that he is able to accomplish anything. Then we miss out on what God could be giving. And notice how it all falls out. Look at the weight of all of this. Look at how it begins. Verse 19 says that the Lord was with Judah, but they could not drive out uh, these inhabitants in the plain because they had chariots of iron. And now the continued faithlessness marches on. Look at verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who were in Jerusalem. Then you can jump down to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. But did not drive them out completely. Look at verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. 
Complete faithlessness. Nobody is doing what God said. God said, I've given you the land, go in and take it. And tribe after tribe now fail. Each tribe, listen, says, no, they didn't do it. They didn't drive them out of the land. They did not do as God told them to do. And then verse 34 is probably the worst of all. Not only are we seeing tribes not driving them out out of the land, verse 34, the Amorites drive Dan out of the land. It reverses and the inhabitants are winning against Dan. And now Dan is backed into a corner. Notice that in verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not even allow them to come into the plain. Not only are they unable to drive them out, but now the inhabitants are winning and driving the tribes back out. Total failure. An unwillingness to be able to drive them out. And if this was not bad enough, then you'll notice like verse 35 where it says like in certain places, the house of Joseph decided to enslave some of the Amorites and put them into forced labor which God had told them not to do. The tribes start making covenants with the people who live in the land. And the tribes begin to, since they are not going to be able to drive them out, use them for their own economic purposes and put them into forced labor and to use them in that way. And what you then see in chapter 1 is they're making the choice of convenience and economy rather than doing the will of the Lord. Well, it's a whole lot easier just to put them into forced labor. We'll just have them work for us. Why drive them out of the land? We could use them to our own advantage. We'll have them work for us. We'll let them be forced labor. Why drive them out of the land? We'll make a treaty with them and we'll sign a treaty that we will not fight you and you just leave us alone and we'll all be okay. And this is not what God wanted. God had wanted them to drive these people out. And so often, here's how this plays out, is we think that we are doing what God says, when in fact we're not at all. And how God describes that is so fascinating in this very text. Here it is that the people, it's not like they just rebelled against God. The people did not say, you know what, we're here in Canaan, we just don't want to do it. Notice it says they're trying and they lose, (laughs) right? Verse 19, they try to drive them out, but they have chariots of iron. That's not going to work out very well. And so many of these texts, and we don't have time to go through piece by piece, but he'll talk about they try and they lose. So it's not like we're reading about just total rebellion. If the tribe just sat down and crossed their arms and said, you know what? We don't care what God has to say. We're not going to do it. They did muster the army and go into battle, and they got whipped. They lost. And what we're seeing is this is the problem of half-hearted obedience. This is what happens when you have partial faith. That partial faith leads to partial obedience, and that's what's happening. We kind of believe in God. We kind of think He's given us this land. But as soon as we come up against chariots of iron, well, I don't know if God's with us for that battle. Well, we can beat them in the hill country, but we can't win in the plain. So I just don't know if God's going to help us here. And what seems to look like faith on the part of these tribes, what seems to be a partial degree of faith, turns out to be no faith at all. And it seems the people can't understand why they're failing. And yet the reason is obvious. Because they do not fully believe in the word of God. 
They do not believe in the promises of God. They don't believe in the power of the Lord. And that kind of faith then is rejected by God. He says, this is not what I've called you to do. This is not what I've asked for you to accomplish. Now, I want you to notice God's response to this, because I think this becomes fascinating. Look at chapter two, verse one. This becomes instructive for us tonight. Judges two, verse one. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said, I brought you up from the land from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bohem, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So here it is. Here are the tribes. Failure after failure after failure. They do not drive out the inhabitants. They do not drive out the inhabitants. They try to muster some. They get some lands. They're able to conquer certain places, but they don't drive them out. Instead, they make covenants with them and put them into forced labor. And what's God's response to that? Does God go, well, I'm glad that you had some amount of faith so that you would have some victory from time to time. I'm glad that you had some faith in me for some of those battles and I know that's better than no faith at all so good for you at least you had some <laughs> notice that God basically says your partial obedience is no obedience at all he just rejects this the angel of the Lord comes in and notice what the point is back here in chapter 1 and verse 19 notice how the language is worded one nineteen, it says, the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country and he could not drive them out. He couldn't do it. Right. But what's God saying when we get to chapter two about all that? God says you wouldn't do it. He comes to them and says, you didn't do what I told you to do. The people stand back and they go, we couldn't do it. You know, we tried, but they had chariots of iron. They were really strong. You know, they really had that hill country bunker down. We tried to drive them out, but we just couldn't do it. So we just, you know, put them into forced labor, made covenants with them because we couldn't do it. And God comes in and goes, so why wouldn't you obey me? Why didn't you do what I told you to do? I told you, here's how it was supposed to go. I want you to utterly drive them out. I don't want you to make a covenant with them. So why did you disobey? I want you to consider that how often our camps are really won'ts. <laughs> that's, that's where the people are. Oh, we can't do it. And God goes, no, the actual answer is you won't do it. You have no problem. God says, I'm with you. God didn't send them into this so that they would lose. God didn't bring them up out of Egypt and take them into the land of Canaan so that the inhabitants would just wipe them out dead on the ground there. He brought them there for victory. And the people rise up and go, we can't do it. And I want us to consider how often that is true of our faith. That what we think is a cannot is really actually a will not. That we will not do what God says. 
How often we make such excuses like that, why we say we can't obey. We can't do what God says to do, when in fact it really is a choice that we will not. And I think the sad thing is, is so often we can think we're doing well because we have partial faith. Well, you know, I'm doing pretty well. Look at the faith that I have. And, you know, so it seems very spiritual and it seems like we're doing really well. But God tries to show us that partial faith is a lack of faith. That is a concept we've seen in the Gospel of John so strongly pointed out. Here's the Gospel of John all over and over again. Your partial faith is insufficient. Full faith is what is required. The event that we read about in the New Testament that we see Peter with the disciples and here they are and they're rowing out in this boat and Jesus is out there walking on the water and all the disciples are scared. And Peter says, if that's really you, command me to come out. Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. And from our perspective, we look at that and go, that is amazing faith. I mean, who would do something like that? He got out of the boat and he started walking on the water. I mean, that is amazing. What great faith. You know what Jesus said about it? And when Peter then starts looking at the wind and begins to drown... Oh, you have little faith. He assesses it and says, there's no faith there. We look at it as some kind of impressive degree of faith because we've come to this kind of level and God goes, that's not it. And that is what is happening here in the book of Judges. Oh, look at us. We're the people of God. We're going out to victory. And God's saying, you don't have faith. Because if you had full faith... It would lead to full obedience. You would do all that God has told you to do. You wouldn't second guess the command of God. And you certainly wouldn't look at iron chariots and think you can't win. You would not look at the physical and say the physical is too great. We cannot win. That's kind of a curious thing about faith. I was pondering that as I was thinking about this lesson is it brought a realization to me that you either have faith or you don't. It's not something you can really have degrees of. You either believe in what the person can do or you don't. You either believe what the person says or you don't. There's not really a halfway line to say, well, I kind of believe in what God has to say, but I'm kind of unsure. And that's a partial faith. You're either in that when he says it, I believe it or you're out because I don't believe it. And I think that's the observation that the narrator of Judges is making. Partial faith. Is no faith at all. And partial faith is in essence then full disobedience. And I want you to notice the consequences of what God says to them about this. The consequences then are fairly weighty as he describes them to them. He says, notice in in verse 2, he says, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? You know, we'd sit back and go, oh, no, we've obeyed. 
You know, we went to war. We, we were moving them around. We were trying. God goes, you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 3, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, and but they shall become a thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Here God comes along and says, you are going to pay the consequences for that partial faith and partial obedience. There are consequences that are going to come from that. And he tells them, these things are now going to be thorns in your side. The inhabitants are going to now oppress you and they will be a thorn in your side. And their gods, their idols are now going to be thorns to you as well. And that is the problem of sin. It is the very problem of sin is we think that we can keep these sins and keep these idols kind of at arm's distance and it's going to be okay. And look, I've got some faith toward God. Look at me. I put them over here. But there are still thorns in our sides. And they still rise up and afflict us. And they still tempt us. And they still steal our heart away from God. And they still cause us to not desire God with all of our heart. It is then becomes an enslavement to sin. It is one of the reasons why God tells us over and over again to turn away from sin. It is for our own good. Because we become enslaved to these things. It becomes a thorn in your side to the point that you can hardly get out of it even if you want to. What becomes a hobby becomes an addiction. What becomes an addiction becomes something so unbreakable in this horrible vice that gets worse and worse. We sit back and go, oh, well, you know, it's okay. God says, no, I'm trying to keep you from that. That's why I'm calling for full faith. Because otherwise, these are the consequences that come. And the language that he uses here in verse 3 is, well, I'm not going to drive them out before you. Their disobedience causes them to miss out on the blessings that God's trying to give them. And how true that is, that, that that's really what Satan is accomplishing. In driving us back into sin, we are missing out on a joyful life that exists in Christ. All the blessings that God has promised and the great relationship that we could enjoy and all the desire that resides there. And we have our hearts and our minds tied up in the things of the world. It causes us to miss out on what God wants to do with our lives and the blessings that come from that. And so God gives a very powerful message to them. Your could not was really a would not. God does not accept their excuse of how they could not drive out the inhabitants and now drops the consequences on them. They're now going to be a thorn in your side. You did not obey what I told you to do. And I did that for your good. I did that so that these things would not be a thorn in your side and afflict you. But now those things are going to. And we reap the same consequences from sin. These things now become thorns in our slides and problems in our lives. Because we refuse to rip them out by the power of God's strength. But there's one amazing other statement that's made here that we'll use to wrap up. Did you notice how he started that in verse 1? After this long section from verse 2, 3, and 4, you disobeyed, you did not break down the altars, you weren't supposed to make a covenant with them. What is this that you have done? You have not obeyed my voice. And so I'm not going to drive them out. They're going to be thorns in your side. You're going to deal with them the rest of the time. But look at the words of verse 1 when he says, 
that I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Now listen to it. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. That's staggering. Here are the people disobeying God completely. They're not doing what they were told to do. They do not have the faith in God. They're looking at the physical. They're living on an earthly level. And they fail to grasp and understand the power of God. How God could wipe them out in a heartbeat. They had just had in the previous generation massive miraculous victories like the walls of Jericho falling down and destroying a city because they marched around it seven times. And the generation before saw the fall of Egypt because God rained down fire and brimstone upon them. Amazing. He made the land dark. He made frogs go everywhere. He kills all of the cattle. He makes the Red Sea part. And then we come up to some chariots of iron and we go, well, I just don't know. I don't know. And God, God comes in and says to them, I swore to you, I'll never break my covenant. That God continues to be faithful even when his people disobey. This becomes, I think, the shocking story of the book of Judges that we'll get to examine. Is how many times do you think the people will sin and call out to God and God will finally say, you know what, that's just enough. I mean, how many times do I have to save you and you guys keep going back into sin? There's really no reason for me to save you because I know you're going to go back into sin again. There's nowhere in the account of judges where the people cry out to God and God goes, you know what, no. Every time the people cry out to God, God keeps his covenant and saves his people. It is a shocking picture of how God loves his people. It is a picture of how God continues to maintain his covenant. You know, you see that at Mount Sinai. We saw that with the golden calf. Here is the the golden calf scene. And Moses is up on the mountain and here they are in idolatry and doing everything that God had told them not to do. And Moses comes down from that mountain and he breaks those two tablets of stone. A great picture of the breaking of the covenant. You've broken the covenant. And here's the the imagery of it as it's shattered. And then Moses goes back on the mountain and what does God do? He writes the covenant with his own finger, the commandments on two tablets of stone, and says, go back down there and do it again. We have an amazing God who takes us back every time we call out to him. And the book of Judges pictures it. Here's God saying, I will not break my covenant with you, even though you keep violating it over and over and over again. I take you back every time. This is the message of the book of Judges. It is the message of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is God's faithfulness that must move us to full faith. What will move us out of the rut of partial obedience and partial faith and not believing in the promises of God, but looking at how he keeps his covenant and keeps his promises and maintains his faithfulness to his people every time? First John one verses seven through nine are so staggering. There's not a limit there. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins until you've done it 4,000 times and then that's enough. I mean, come on now. After 4,000 times, I think you've crossed the line and God's just done. Nope. He's just faithful and righteous to his promises that he'll take us back when we cry out to him. And the book of Judges shows the cycle as the people get worse and worse and worse. When their hearts turn back to God, God takes them back. That display of grace must lead us to obedience. That display of grace must lead us to faith. The book of Judges reminds us of an awesome God that we serve. That though we fall on our faces and we sin in horrible ways, if we will come back to God, if we will turn our hearts back to him, you cannot wear God out. He takes you back again and you can start new with him and you can start fresh with him. And the covenant promises of God continue with you if you'll give your heart back to the Lord. And I hope you'll do that tonight. You pull your song books out. We'll sing invitation song. And we invite you to see the hope that's in the grace of Jesus Christ. Who takes us back again and again. The blood of Jesus is powerful and strong enough to forgive us for all our sins. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you take advantage of that and today make a dedication in your life that you will confess your sins to God and turn away from your sins. And start living for him, full of faith, believing in the promises, and no longer serving self, and no longer living for sin. But serve your God who loves you dearly. And if you've not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that is how you enter the relationship with Jesus. That's how you enter into this glorious place of forgiveness and hope. Will you come and do that tonight while we stand and while we sing?